that don't know me, uh, my name's Andrew and along with my wife Melanie and a great group of leaders we pastor this church called Mount Clear Church of Christ, so welcome with us today. Um, we're very excited a bit, uh, about having Peter and Justin with us as well uh, and what they're going to share, so thank you for coming along today. Is that all good? I made a terrible joke last night with a group of us about the wonderful win of the Western Bulldogs, but I won't make that today in case there are any West Coast Eagle supporters here. Um, but it really is our privilege to have um, Peter McHugh from Stairway Church with us. Um, we have been as a church on a journey with Peter Lynn uh, and their team for a few years now and it has changed the way that, that I walk with the Lord and the way that I look at myself and, the, and it's just it's spoken into our life in a myriad of ways that still even today continues to, to be unpacked and so it's a real privilege to, to have you with us. So without taking up any more time, I'll um, get what you need and come and bring us a, you. a wonderful word. Very good. Thank you, sir. That's great. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to see you today. Appreciate you coming out on a Saturday and uh, spending some time together uh, in the presence of the Lord, most importantly. Thank you for uh, getting surrounded. I want to begin this morning by um, just talking about uh, one of the most important topics, I think, for all of us to consider. And so let me start by saying that I have three children. Uh, Hannah is 33, Aaron is 31, and Dave is 29. Uh, they're all married, and so they've given us eight grandchildren to date. Uh, we might pick one more up along the way, uh, but at the minute we've got eight. Um, I dare say it won't go to ten, though. Um, and so one of the interesting things about raising children and watching my kids now raise their kids is that we are all trying to help them to mature. We all recognise that the behaviour of a two-year-old who can't get their own way throwing a tantrum in the middle of the shopping centre is not how we'd want them to be at 22. We would hope that when they don't get their own way at 22 that they have a more sophisticated way of communicating that they are disappointed in not getting their way. And so there is a, a maturing process in all sorts of different parts of our lives that we're wanting to help our kids uh, to grow into. As children of God, the Holy Spirit is wanting the same thing for us. He's wanting us to mature. He's wanting us to grow in being like him and being a part of his kingdom. It's called being a disciple. It's about following him. It's about deciding I'm actually going to surrender to you and I'm going to allow you to teach me how to be mature in your world and to stop being immature in my own world. And so when we think about that idea, uh, when Lynn and I were raising our three children, we realised that they were born with a blank white page and somebody was going to write on that page. Somebody was going to inform them as to who they were, what they were good at, how much they were loved, etc. And so one of the privileges of being a parent is that you get to write on that blank white page. As they go to school and as they get involved in other things, other people try to write on that page and cross out what you've put there and put in what they want. Um, but one of the privileges is that we do get to write on that blank white page. And as we're writing on it, we're writing on it with a sense of designing what they will become in 20 years' time. We're wanting to help them to take on board's attitudes, to take on board a way of seeing life that would help them to have a successful life, that they would be able to engage in their culture and be a blessing to their culture. And so we can either live by design or we can live by default. And, uh, and living by design means that I have figured out the destiny that I, the destination that I'm trying to reach. 
I may not be there, but I know what I am reaching for. When we live by default, we don't really have a clear idea of where we're going. We just sort of stumble through and we make the best of it as we can. And so one of the great things or opportunities about being a disciple of Jesus is that he actually does give us some destinations to aim at, some points on the journey that we can continually be reaching for. And one of those destinations, I actually think it's the primary destination, uh, is, uh, is described very aptly by the Lord and very well by him. And it's that that I really want to talk about today. So if you've got a Bible uh, or a smartphone or iPhone, turning to your app on there, knowing that you're not social networking uh, while I'm talking, um, if we can go to 1 John chapter 3. And, uh, and I, I want you to, just as we're turning there, think about what, do, what would you believe is the most significant destination in your journey of faith and being a disciple of Jesus that he wants you to, to travel towards, to journey towards, recognising that it is a journey, it's a journey of transformation to become like him. But what would, the, what would the most single important thing be that would define your life as a disciple of Jesus? When a bunch of Christians in America were asked this question recently, a couple of years, by a group of researchers, um, they answered that question, 81% of them answered that question by saying that their spiritual maturity would be defined by how well they follow the rules. And that's an intriguing answer to me because I don't think that it is actually a New Testament answer. It may be an Old Testament answer, but it's not a New Testament answer. And it intrigues me that inside of the church that there is more Old Testament belief and Old Testament teaching than there is New Testament belief and New Testament teaching. Let me illustrate it this way. When we look at the gospel of Jesus through Old Testament eyes, we see the gospel as being a gospel of demand. We think that God is demanding that we behave in a certain sort of way. As a gospel of demand, we think that God is interested in our behavior management that he's actually wanting us to behave in a certain way so that he will be well pleased with us and will keep him happy and will avoid punishment, wrath, some sort of fire coming out of heaven, etc., etc. I listen to people, Christians, say that God must be upset with them because they're sick or they're going broke, that God is trying to teach them a lesson. I have to say that I've never taught my kids a lesson by actually sort of making, breaking their bones and maybe it'll be good for you to learn a lesson if I punish you in a way that really hurts you. Um, and so the, through Old Testament eyes, it's a gospel of demand that's about behaviour management. And we actually think the gospel is about making people better. And in that gospel of demand, Old Testament eyes, we think that we're meant to learn to love as we love ourselves because that's what the second great commandment says. On the other hand, I want to suggest to you that the gospel of Jesus through New Testament eyes is actually a gospel of invitation. It's not a gospel of demand. It's a gospel of invitation into a relationship. It's a gospel of invitation into a place of surrender. It's a gospel of invitation into a place where I'm going to trust you, Lord, that you know better than I do. As a gospel of invitation, he's not demanding, he's inviting. He's inviting us to consider what it would take for us to allow him to come in and take complete and total control of the way that we live our lives. And so as a gospel of invitation, it's actually about belief management. It's not about behavior management. It's about, it's understanding, the New Testament understands the principle that behavior is always the echo of belief. 
So when you behave in a certain way, it's because you're believing something. When you get angry, you don't get angry in a vacuum. You get angry because you're believing something. You believe you're threatened. You believe you need to be right. You believe that somebody else has done something wrong and they need to be punished with your anger. So behavior is always an echo of belief. The 12-step programs for people with alcohol addiction or sex addiction or gambling addiction, they all understand this. What they're really trying to do is to change the belief of the people. The 12-step programs are about changing what you believe so that your behavior follows. And so we find the same thing with Paul as he writes the letters to the churches of the New Testament. He writes them and he invariably begins with, this is what we believe. The first half of his letters are all about, this is what happened when you were born again. This is how God has come into your life and these are the realities of that change. And then the second half is, given that we believe this, this is now how we behave. It's called Christian living. And so, uh, so the, the whole idea of the New Testament is that it's a gospel of invitation that asks you to look at your beliefs, understanding that as you change your belief, your behavior will change. So it's about belief management, not behavior management. It also understands that the gospel doesn't just make you better, it actually makes you different. That when you were born again, old things passed away, behold, everything became new. And so in the Old Testament, it's, with Old Testament eyes, it's about me trying harder because I have to, it's about making me better. But then the, when you actually look at the scriptures through New Testament eyes, you realize the gospel is it's made you different. And so it's now how you connect with that new nature that you have on the inside, that the old man has died and you have a new nature and you're putting off the old and you're putting on the new. And in the gospel through New Testament eyes, you actually realize that love is not about loving yourself but it's not about self-love, but it's actually about knowing how much God loves you. Because Jesus gave us a new commandment, and the new commandment was love one another as I have loved you. The second commandment of the Old Testament was love one another as you love yourself. The new piece of information is that we are to love one another from the place of knowing how much God loves us, no longer loving one another from how much we love ourselves. It's one of the reasons why we don't love one another very well, because we don't love ourselves. And we'll look at that a little bit as we go through our time together today. And so, so it intrigues me, as I said, that 81% of Christians, self-confessed Christians in America, would say that their spiritual maturity is marked by following the rules. What that tells me is that they're looking at the gospel, they're looking at the gospel through Old Testament eyes. They're looking at it through being a gospel of demand that's about behavior management, that's all about making people better, and it's about self-love, and it's therefore about performance. Whereas the gospel through New Testament eyes says, no, it's actually not about my behavior. It's not about following the rules. My spiritual maturity is not defined by following the rules. My spiritual maturity is defined by my capacity to love well. That's what it is to be a New Testament Christian. And I want to suggest to you through the course of today that if you're going to live your life by design, if you want to understand what is it that God's trying to mature you into, I want to suggest to you that the primary thing that he's wanting to mature you into is a person who loves well, who is loving in a way in 12 months' time that you're not loving today, that you're loving God, you're loving others, and you're loving yourself, and that that's the transformation, that he, that's the journey he has you on. The transformational journey he is taking you on is to help you become a better lover. And he does that through invitation. He does that by the Holy Spirit asking you to consider what you're believing to cause you to punish other people, to need to be right, to make other people the bad guy and you're the good guy, that you would actually feel that you have the right to criticize and judge somebody when that is not the way that God treats you. And so, so the, it's about 
uh, the Holy Spirit showing us what we're believing because behavior is always the echo of belief. And so if I'm going to love well, if I'm going to advance in my ability to love, then it's got to do with my belief. And so the Holy Spirit shines light into our hearts to help us see what we're believing. And we may get to talk about how he does that during the course of today. Having done that, he wants us to then learn how to connect with the place where we're different, where I've been born again, my new nature, Christ in me and me in Christ, so that I'm then actually loving people on the basis of how much he loves me, not on the basis of how much I love myself. And so, so with all of that in mind, um, here in 1 John uh, chapter 3, and verse 14, we find uh, John saying, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. We know that we have passed out of death into life. What's he saying? He's saying we know that we've been born again. We know that we've been born above, from above. We know that we've been born out of death into life. We've been born out of the spirit of the, of the law of sin and death and we've been born into the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We no longer are controlled by the spirit of the law of sin and death, but we are now controlled by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so in the New Testament for John, the marker of being a Christian was not that they'd prayed a prayer of repentance on an altar call and invited Jesus into their life to forgive them of their sin. That wasn't the marker of being a, being a follower of Jesus. It wasn't that they went to church. I believe in praying a prayer of repentance. It's how I came to faith. I got born again. I'm not saying it, that's not necessary. And I'm certainly not saying it's not necessary to come to church. I'm pleased you're here today that I've got someone to talk to. Um, I would have spoken to Justin if he was the only one that turned up, but I am pleased that there are others here. And so I'm not saying that those things aren't important, but what I am saying is that they were not the marker of being a follower of Jesus in the New Testament. The marker of being a follower of Jesus in the New Testament is we know that we have been born from above, that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. For the New Testament believers, the mark of being a follower of Jesus was their capacity to love well. It was all about love for them. It was about living inside of a love that they had received from God and that they then wanted to give away to others. And so the mark of spiritual maturity here is not about following the rules. The mark of spiritual maturity is about how well I'm learning to love others, how well I'm learning to love God, because it's as I know how much he loves me, love one another as I have loved you, I'm then able to love other people. And so <clears throat> the truth about life is that life, progress in life, transformation in life, is always connected to failure. The places where we progress the most are the places where we learn from our mistakes. And so one of the things, though, is that we actually can be afraid of failure. We can be afraid of making mistakes. I don't know about you, but I learned to ride a bike more by how I fell off than how I actually got going straight because I didn't want to fall off again. I didn't like the gravel rash. I, I didn't enjoy the feeling of, you know, falling and kaboom, I'm on the ground. In those days, wearing helmets wasn't mandatory. And uh, so I still remember the day that I was, I was just new to learning to ride a bike. I was going down a hill and I uh, lived in Canberra. It was September and the magpies like to protect their babies in September. And I just felt this magpie hit me in the back of the head with its beak as it swooped. And of course, I lost control and I was splattered all over the ground. And the gravel rash up here was extraordinary as I picked pieces of gravel out to 
And so I learnt a lot from that experience. One, I learnt never to ride there again. <laughs> Two, I recognised that if I had something on my head, that would help. And that's why you see people riding around in September with these helmets with all these little funny bits of sticks because uh, they look like they've come from overseas, <laughs> like they've come from outer space, and uh, because they're trying to keep the magpies away. And so, uh, so you learn more from your mistakes. I, you learn more from when, you know, when I was learning to drive a car. I just got my license and I was sitting at a set of traffic lights, so four-way set of traffic lights. I was wanting to turn right. The lights were green going this way. They were red going this way. And so, like most people, I pulled out into the intersection waiting to slip around. And uh, so I was sitting there. The lights went to orange and I thought, I'm time to go around. So I was just focused on going around. The car coming the other way decided they would run the orange light and they came smashing into me, writing my father's car off. And I was to blame because I was turning right even though they had run the red light. The greater sin was that uh, the person turning right is meant to avoid the accident. Um, my father, understandably, was not deeply impressed about this uh, event that took place. And uh, ever since, turning right has been an obsession of mine, making sure that I don't have an accident again. And, uh, and so we learn from our mistakes. But often when there is a mistake, we feel somewhat exposed, we feel vulnerable, we feel that we might have failed. And so our preference is actually to make the mistake somebody else's issue rather than it being my issue. But what the Holy Spirit is actually wanting to do in life in general is that when I make a mistake in the way that I'm loving others, He's wanting me to take responsibility for my part of the breakdown, not saying that somebody else doesn't have their part to play, but I don't have the power to change them. I do have the power to change myself. I do have the capacity to become a better lover. And the only way I'll become a better lover is if I'm living by design and I've actually said that is my goal. That is what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian for me as a church leader is not that I grow the church bigger, is not that I have you know, more people attending than anybody else in the local area, not that we see more miracles and signs and wonders. All of that stuff I celebrate as long as we're growing because people have been born again. I don't particularly enjoy the whole transfer growth thing, but that's another conversation altogether. Um, but, and so, so all of that's great, but that doesn't mark my spirituality. I, I have chosen to design my life around what I hear the scripture saying, is that love is the hallmark of what it is to be a believer. And so everything about my life is about how do I love well. And I have a whole bunch of stuff on the inside here that stops me from loving well. I have a bunch of attitudes and beliefs. I've got a bunch of pain that came from my childhood. I've got a bunch of fear that I'm still wrestling with and I'm overcoming so that I can learn to love well. And so here, uh, John is saying that the hallmark, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. If we go over into verse 23, we find him saying, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So we're going to leave our finger in here, or we're going to come back here. You can pull your finger out if you want. Oh, that's not the right way to say that. But uh, we'll go to John chapter 13, and uh, as we're pulling our fingers out, and... Uh, <laughs> John chapter 13. So uh, here in verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So love one another just as he commanded us. If we go now to John chapter 13 and verse 34 and 35, this is where we pick up the idea that there is actually a commandment in the New Testament that we're to follow, which, is, which trumps, albeit like I'm going to be sounding heretical right now, 
but it trumps the two great commandments that we continually want to reference because Jesus said there were two great commandments of the Old Testament, but there is an even greater commandment of the New Testament. And if we follow the New Testament commandment, which we're about to read, we will pull off the two great commandments of the Old Testament. But it's on a different basis. It's not about what I do, but it's about what he's doing in me. So in uh, John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so a number of things in here. It's a new commandment. So if it's new, it's the information in here that they've never heard before. And so let's go back 2,000 years. We're sitting wherever Jesus is, talking, and we're listening to him talk. And he says, a new commandment. What's the information? Well, I've heard this is my commandment that you love one another. I've heard that bit before. Love one another is the second great commandment. But love one another as I have loved you. The new piece of information is as I have loved you. In the Old Testament, it was love one another as you love yourself or love one another as you love your neighbour, so that you love your neighbour. And so, so Jesus is actually saying there's a whole new way of relating to God and it's relating to God from how much you know you are loved by him so that you can love others well from there. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. It seems to me that Jesus is actually making the end game of being a disciple of how we love one another. It seems to me that he's saying your maturity isn't marked by how well you follow the rules. Your maturity is marked by how well you love one another. That that is the whole deal. That's the transformational journey that we have been invited into by being born again, by being born from above. We know we've passed from death into life because of our love for the brethren. And so then John, over here in verse 23, he references, this is his commandment. Why is he saying it's his commandment? Because he, John understands that there is actually a new commandment. Jesus gave us his own commandment. This is my commandment that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And this is how I want the world to know that you're my disciples. We, we, we're missing this. We, we wonder why we live in a culture where darkness is increasing. I would want to humbly suggest and ask you to consider today, it's because we're not learning to love one another well. Like people look at the church and they see us arguing with one another all the time. They hear us bad-mouthing other people. They see us as the moral police of our culture. They see us standing up in a way that they think is hypocritical because we expect one thing, but they watch us doing another. And so, so, you know, I channel surf sometimes. I get bored watching what I'm watching and I bump into a program called The Biggest Loser. I've only probably, probably watched it for about four or five minutes and then I keep moving. But, but the number of times that I have watched it, I, I'm actually deeply, deeply impressed with the people that are on that program. They stand in front of an international audience with far too few, clo far too few clothes on with a lot more weight than they would really want to have and they stand on a scale and the number that comes up is extraordinarily frightening. The thing I'm deeply impressed about them is that they're prepared to face the problem so they can find a solution to get where they want to go. You'll never actually get to where you want to go unless you define the problem correctly in the first place. And then you live by design. So they live by design. They go, we're now going to design a program. We're going to lose so much weight over this period and we're going to change our eating habits and we're going to exercise and blah, blah, blah. 
I'm just deeply impressed that they would do that. All I'm trying to do today is, in defining the problem, it's not meant to be we're failing, we're hopeless, we're no good. It's just that it helps us design the solution to know where we're going. And so, so we, if, we've just got to face the fact that Jesus actually said, this is, this is how people will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. I just don't think that people know we're disciples of Jesus because we're not loving well. So let's be like the biggest loser and let's just be strong enough and courageous enough to face the truth and go, we're going to live by design. So the end game is that we're going to be better lovers. So what has to happen to get there? What, what's that journey look like? And is that the journey of discipleship? I want to suggest to you that it is the journey of discipleship. And there's a whole bunch of other things that spin out of it. The, all sorts of things begin to change when you start to love God deeply Love others deeply and love yourself deeply. But you do all of that on the basis of knowing how much he loves you. And we'll get to that shortly. Verse 24 is really interesting in here as well. He says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The one who keeps his commandments. Now the dilemma with this word keep is that it's actually a, it is a reasonably good translation of the original word. But the problem with this word keep is it plays into the gospel of demand that so many of us are used to living by. So when you make your spiritual maturity, 81% of Christians in America, and I think it's probably the same here in Australia, mark their spiritual maturity by how well they follow the rules. When they read this word keep, they read performance. This is something else that I need to do. This is something else that I need to strive towards. And so those who keep his command, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. The word keep here is actually more accurately translated in this way. So I've got my three kids, they're all married, we've got eight grandkids, we're all at home, we're having lunch one Sunday after church and somebody knocks on the door and comes barging through and they've got an AK-47 and they're there to kill us all. My first response to that situation is keep the women and children safe by putting them in the bedroom whilst we the men will protect them. That's what this word keep here actually means. It's keeping something safe. It's protecting something. It's not effort. It's not trying. It's not striving. It's about protecting something. So if we read it with that idea in mind, it says the one who protects his commandments abides in him. What are we protecting? We're protecting how well we love. And so that the, the design of my spirituality is that every moment of every day, I am protecting God's, the love that I know that God has for me so that I love others well. I'm not going to be robbed of that knowledge by my inner world that has a whole bunch of turmoil and that misreads the information that others are giving me and then treat them in a way that is not coming from the love of God, but it's coming from me staying safe. I'm not going to give myself, I'm going to protect the love of God that's inside of me and I'm not going to become critical and judgmental of people. Because once I'm starting to become critical and judgmental, once I'm making people the bad guys, I'm no longer protecting the love of God that's in me, I've gone somewhere else. I'm not keeping the commandment to love one another as I have loved you safe. And so, so what that then means is that I have to become self-aware of when I'm not loving people the way that God loves them when I'm not loving myself the way that God loves me. 
And so, so it becomes a journey of self-awareness and personal responsibility. It becomes a journey where I'm self-aware that I am responding in a way, would Jesus respond this way to, in this situation? And if the answer is no, then okay, failure's all right. Failure's not a problem. It's just a sign towards how I can improve. So if Jesus wouldn't respond this way, what is it in me that's giving myself permission to respond in a way that I don't think Jesus would? I'm self-aware and I take personal responsibility for it. It's not because of what you're doing, but it's because of what I'm believing. And so now I invite the Holy Spirit because I come before the throne of grace in time of need. I need some help right now to protect and love the people in this situation in a way that I'm not doing so well at, at the minute. Let me illustrate this. I wasn't going to go here, but I feel led to right now. So let's just go across to John chapter 16 and let me try and unpack this a little bit. And I'll keep my finger in there. I won't pull my finger out. Um, so John chapter 16, verse 31. Jesus answered, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. These things I have spoken to you so that in me is a really important thought. And then in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The word tribulation here doesn't mean bad things happening in your circumstances. The word tribulation here is not the tribulation of the book of Revelation. The word tribulation here is not the world's coming to an end and we're in the tribulation and we're being forced to take the mark of the beast and we're saying no and we're all getting martyred and life's gone down the gurgler and so I'm going to become a pre-trib believer because I don't want to go through all of that. It's not talking about that at all. What it's talking about, this word tribulation here, means inner turmoil. It actually means inner turmoil. And so what Jesus is saying is that in the world you have inner turmoil. So when you were growing up in your family of origin or the people that you grew up with, you had inner turmoil at times. You wondered whether you were loved and valued and accepted. You had inner turmoil when you were punished unnecessarily, if you were sexually abused. You had inner turmoil when you were uncertain about where you stood with people. We have inner turmoil, we, we're trying to figure out, do I belong, am I secure, and uh, do I have significance? We're all answering this question, what is right and required for acceptance? We, we deeply want to belong, to be secure and be significant. We want to be accepted, and when we don't feel that we are, it creates inner turmoil inside of us. It's called tribulation. And so Jesus is saying, when you grew up, you had experiences that created inner turmoil, and you actually figured out how to manage that inner turmoil to keep yourself safe. You figured out ways of making sure that you were safe, that you were secure, that you were comfortable, and you, you negotiated your way through that inner turmoil in your own strength, with your own understanding. He says, but in me, you can have peace. So in yourself, in your own upbringing, in how you have framed the world up and you see things, you have inner turmoil. So for me, the, the, my, my deep revelation of this was about 11 years ago now. Um, and if you want to read about it, there's a book I've written called A Voyage of Mercy. Uh, it's not available. It's out of print now, but you can get it from Amazon. Uh, and all the information's over there on the table about how you do that. 
But what I discovered in 2004, at the end of 2004 and coming into 2005, was that my inner turmoil, I'd answered that question, what is right and required for acceptance, by saying, I have to be a good boy and I can't get anything wrong. I'm the eldest of four children in a Roman Catholic family with a dad whose temper got the better of him at times. I don't need to go into that too much, but not when I'm being recorded. Um, and so, so for me, what is right and required for acceptance? Be a good boy and don't get anything wrong. That's how I felt that I belonged, I was secure, and I had significance. I still have memories of, of, of feeling so warm when I was you know, applauded for doing the right thing by significant others in my world. Now, the only problem is that once you've answered the question, what is right and required for acceptance, be a good boy, don't get anything wrong, you now have created councils of fear. Because now you're fear afraid of not getting the things that get your acceptance wrong. And so my counsels of fear became a fear of failure, a fear of rejection, a fear of being misunderstood and a fear of being taken advantage of. They were the counsels of fear that came into my world. And so in, this, in a turmoil, I'm now afraid of failure and getting things wrong, being rejected. And so I bring all of that with me into my experience of being a follower of Jesus. At the age of 25, I bring all of that stuff with me that I learned. My inner turmoil is, whatever you do, Peter, avoid failure, avoid rejection, avoid being misunderstood, and avoid being taken advantage of. Make sure you manage the world so that that doesn't happen to you. And if that means that other people have to be the casualties, that's all right because they're wrong and you're right. Or as a church leader, well, I am the leader and I'm going to maintain control here and I'm going to stay safe by using my leadership position to ensure that I don't have to experience those fears. And so, so information comes at me that pushes those buttons. But as a follower of Jesus, I have another place I can go to. In Jesus, I have peace. If I know how much I'm loved by God, then those fears will be dealt with because perfect love casts out all fear. And so if, I still, if I'm still experiencing this fear, which I realised in 2004 and 2005 that I was and the Lord took me on this journey where he wanted me to have an encounter with his love so that those fears were no longer going to dominate my world. And so this is the journey. Because, because love is the end point, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, then my privilege and my responsibility is to allow the Lord to change me so that my fear isn't my counsellor, but love is my counsellor. Peace is my counsellor. And so we're all in this journey where, where we, we can either live with our inner turmoil or we can live in who we are in Christ. And so information comes at us. And so, if, so here, if we go back into the verse before, we find out what Jesus is really trying to get at. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. What's he saying? Information's coming that you're going to be alone. So Peter McHugh, information's coming that you're going to be rejected. What am I afraid of? I have a fear of rejection. And so that information comes and it can touch the inner turmoil in my world if I haven't been healed up and set free. And so Jesus says, it's going to look like I'm alone. However, I have another reality. My reality is that the Father's with me and so I'm not alone. Over here, I don't have that reality. The knowledge of God's love for me is not strong enough 
to, re, to fight off, I'm, I'm being rejected. And so what do I do? I defend myself by making sure I reject you first. Lovingly and purposefully, but still making sure that you're the loser. What does Jesus want to do? He wants to actually get another piece of knowledge inside of me, just like Jesus had, that I'm not alone because the Father's with me. So that when that information of I, I'm being, people are leaving me, I don't have any inner turmoil that it's going to touch because I've been strengthened on the inside. And so the journey is being self-aware that I actually don't have a deep enough revelation of the love of God over here to stop me protecting and defending myself in a way that you become the loser, that I make you the bad guy, that I now give myself permission to criticise you and judge you and say you're failing because of your failure, I'm now feeling what I'm... So if I can just stop you from failing, then I'm going to be okay. So the Holy Spirit, he loves me enough to not leave me where I am and he wants me to design my life that I'm a better lover of people and so I become self-aware that when I'm being critical and judgmental, when I'm making you the bad guy, when I'm not speaking well of you, that I'm not treating you like Jesus would treat you in this moment. And so the issue is mine. So what am I going to do about that? I'm going to ask God, I need grace that, that, you're, that I'd be able to live in your peace even when these difficult messages are coming to me. Jesus never promised that the difficult messages would go away. But what he has promised is that we can learn to abide in him and abide in what he offers us. And so his peace is already in me. It's not a matter of me generating peace. It's actually already there. Because when he came in, he brought his peace with me. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. And so the peace is already in here. It's just that I've got to figure out how to connect with it. But you see, I'm used to connecting with fear over here. And so what I need is to know how much he loves me. Love one another as I have loved you. And so if I'm not loving you well, then I don't actually realise deeply enough how much God has loved me through experience and encounter. So Ephesians 3 verse 19 says this, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. The Greek word there to know means to know by experience and encounter. So to know by experience and encounter the love of Christ which surpasses head knowledge so that you can be filled up to the fullness of God. You see, you have two seats of knowledge in your world. One is in your heart, in your inner world, which you have established through experience and encounter, and another place is in your head. So we all know that we should forgive people. If we've been followers of Jesus for long enough, we know that forgiveness is part of the deal. However, when somebody rejects you, you don't necessarily reach for forgiveness as your first port of call. You reach for, I'm going to prove that I'm right. I'm going to hurt you because you're hurting me. Forgiveness in our head does not ensure that we will be able to forgive people. You'll only forgive deeply if you've been hurt deeply. I learned this lesson back in 1996 when 380 people over an 18-month period started leaving our church. The church was about 1,150 people at the time, so it was about a third of the church that walked out. And they were led out by one, one couple in particular. I, I knew that I had to forgive them. But I found it so difficult to forgive them. All I really wanted to do was to break their kneecaps or hurt them somehow. <laughs> I, it was just like, this is not fair. This is in, unjust. And I felt so exposed and I felt so vulnerable and my fear of failure and my fear of rejection 
been misunderstood, been taken advantage of. They were peeking out. I didn't realise those fears were there at that particular point in time. It took another 10 years of my journey for the Lord to actually show me what was going on. And so I knew I should forgive them, but I found that so difficult. And so I had to figure out, Lord, when will I know that I forgive them? And what I found for myself was that, can I imagine that I'm going to bump into them at the airport completely randomly, and when I see them, I don't want to run the other way, I don't want to avoid them, that I would go like this and say, it's great to see you and give them a hug. In my imagination, I knew that's where I had to get to. And so now I've got to be honest with myself. And so here's the dilemma, is that when we have people like that, we actually have these bird cages in our heads. And the people are a bird inside of the cage. And we, we take, open the bird cage out, we bring them out. We have the argument with them the way we wanted to have it at the time when we did, but we didn't say all the things we wanted to say. And then we get some pins and we stick the pins into them and make sure that they realise that they're actually wrong. We stick them back in the birdcage, we close the door and then we wait till the next day or the next hour to pull them back out again and have another conversation with them to prove that we're right. I'm probably the only one who does that, but... (laughs) (laughs) So when I do that, I'm not loving them like Jesus loves. Jesus doesn't do that to people. And so I had to move from that to, gee, it's great to see you at the airport and I can hug you and say, I'm so pleased to see you again. That was the journey. And it was long and it was difficult and it was chaotic and it was painful. Why would you bother going on a journey like that? Well, you only bother to do that if you make your maturity defined by how well I love people which is what I think Jesus is actually asking us to do. And unless we, may, unless we design our lives out like this, we will live by default. Where's the clock? How do I know how long I'm going for? Oh, I rabbited on for so long. Um, we, we, we won't actually know. If we're not living by design, when you live by default, you don't actually have any markers about whether you're getting closer or not. And so, so my appeal to you today is that Jesus actually wants us to make love the end game. It's what my spirituality is all about. How well I love God and I feel loved by him so that I can love others well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul unpacks this brilliantly. We all know it in verses 1 to 3, that if we don't have love, then we don't have anything. We can be fruitful, we can be casting out demons, we can be doing all sorts of great things, but if we don't have love, it's all meaningless. It's a really nice idea, isn't it? But it's so much more difficult to pursue. And the only way that I've discovered that I can pursue it is that I make it the end game. I make it my goal. That's what I live for, is to be a better lover. Unless I do that, I will give myself reasons and excuses to stop loving because it's just so flippant difficult. It's actually easier to make you the bad guy than to love you. It's actually easier to be critical and judgmental of you. It's actually easier for me to tell you where you're wrong rather than for me to identify where I'm wrong. And when we live through the gospel being through an Old Testament framework, then we give ourselves permission because we go, being a Christian is about behaviour. 81% of people in America think that it's following the rules. And so if you're not following the rules well, then I have a right to make you realise that you're not following the rules. Because that's how I live my spirituality. 
John G. Lake said the following, I continued in the ministry of healing until I saw hundreds of thousands healed. At last I became tired. I went on healing people day after day as though I were a machine. And all the time my heart kept saying, Oh God, let me know yourself better. I want you. My heart wants you, God. Seeing men saved and healed and baptised in the Holy Ghost did not satisfy my growing soul. It was crying out for a greater consciousness of God. The withinness of me was yearning for Christ's own life and love. After a while, my soul reached the place where I said, if I cannot get God into my soul to satisfy the soul of me, all the rest of this is empty. I had lost interest in it, but I put my hands on the sick and they continue to be healed by the power of God. What's he saying? He's saying that I'm yearning to know you. I'm yearning to live inside of your peace. I'm learning to live inside of who you are in me. And even though all of these amazing things are happening, just like 1 Corinthians 13, without love, they're meaningless. Without this sense of being deeply loved by you and wanting to love you in return, all of this becomes meaningless. And so, so in here, we find that, that the Lord is, is pointing us towards something about love. And so the next thing that I want to suggest to you, my second point, there was a long first point, wasn't it? My second point... <laughs> Is that, is that God, his walk with you, his relationship with you, what he is looking for is to remake you in his image. That's, his, that's, that's why he's got you in his family. You might be in the family for another reason, but that's his reason that you're in the family. You might be in the reason because you didn't want to go to hell. You might be in the family because you still don't want to go to hell. But his reason for having you in the family is that he wants to make you look like him. He wants to remake you that you would look like him. He wants to help you get out of that place where you have tribulation in a tribulation and help you get into this place where you live in his peace. And so his, his thing is about your freedom. He wants to set you free from whatever it is that you're believing that causes you to live here so that you can actually learn to live here. So his, his purpose is to remake you. That's, his, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's whole intent is to help you end up looking like Jesus. And so let me just illustrate that with a couple of scriptures and then we'll go to morning tea. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so here we're, we're talking about making disciples. And earlier we read that by, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And so here Jesus is saying, when you're making disciples, there's one thing that I want you to keep teaching them. I want you to keep teaching them that Teach them to observe all that I commanded you, or all that I command you. The word observe or obey there, depending on the translation that you're reading, actually means to guard from loss by keeping your eye upon. So teach them to guard from loss by keeping their eye upon all that I have commanded you. The word I there is really important because we've already seen that Jesus gave us his own commandment. This is my commandment. 
So I want you to guard from loss by keeping your eye upon my commandment. My commandment is to love one another as I have loved you. So, so as a follower of Jesus, what I want you to continually stay in a place of learning and discovery is to keep your eye on how much I love you so that you can love other people well. It's not just a one-off learning thing. It's a transformational journey about dealing with our inner turmoil. And so what we're meant to be doing in helping one another to be disciples is that we're meant to be helping one another to guard from loss by keeping our eye upon how much we're loved by God so that we can love other people well because by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. I don't think we're very good at helping one another guard from loss by keeping our eye upon how much we're loved by God so we love others well because we don't actually understand how much God loves us because we, we, we become satisfied with a head knowledge of how much God loves us rather than an experience and an encounter. And so going back to my own sort of journey, which I describe in A Voyage of Mercy, there was a six-month journey where God helped me see how deeply all of that fear that I described ran around inside my life, how it affected me as a church leader, how it affected the way I love my wife, Lynn, and the way I love my kids, and, and how I love the people of my congregation or didn't love them, as the case potentially was a lot of the time in the way that he wanted me to. And so that journey was about setting me free so that I could guard from loss by keeping my eye upon how much he loves me. So I had an experience and encounter with his love in New Zealand, which has changed my life. And it now has enabled me to keep my eye on how much he loves me in every situation so that I can love other people well. What happens is that we take our eye off this. And so now we're back around the idea of of keeping his commandment, protecting his commandment. How do we protect his commandment? How do we ensure that we make love the end game? Well, we guard from loss by keeping our eye upon how much he loves us. We don't let our eye come down onto what people are doing. We keep our eyes up on how much he loves us. Because when my eyes drop down onto what people are doing, I'll stop loving like God loves because I'll get pushed back into my own inner turmoil of how I protected myself when I was growing up. And so the journey is that, for me anyway, when I come into any gathering of of believers, whether it's with my staff in a prayer meeting, whether it's in a small group that I go to with some friends, whether it's in a church service, whether it's this morning when I'm worshipping with Dan leading us, my whole end game is, God, I want to experience and encounter your love again. I want to guard from loss by keeping my eye on how much you love me because I know that my eye will get drawn away from that if I don't keep having encounters with your love. And so it's not unusual for me at Stairway to have tears running down my cheeks as I'm getting ready to preach. I feel like I'm being undone by the Lord and then I've somehow got to find my way back into my leadership gift and then do what what I'm meant to do. But to do it from a place of knowing how deeply I'm loved so that what I'm saying comes through those rivers of living water that are coming out of me. And so it's, it's this whole tension of how do you guard from loss by keeping your eye on how much God loves you. The only way you can do it is by making it the end game. That's what's the most important thing about my spirituality. And then um, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, so my, my second thought here is that God's, the purpose of God's love is to remake us into looking like his, his love. That's, that's why he's got you in the kingdom. He's, he's on a journey of remaking you, of transformation. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
here Paul is saying is that the work of the Holy Spirit, your destiny is to look like Jesus. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is your destiny. Your destiny isn't to be the best churchgoer on the face of the planet. Your destiny isn't to follow the rules well. Your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so therefore, Jesus wants to work with your inner turmoil, which stops you being like him, so that you can actually get over here and abide in him and stay in him and stay in who you are in Christ. And so this is the purpose of the Spirit is to help you look like Jesus, think like Jesus, see like Jesus, act like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit's up to. And so he will allow life to go south, to suck, to be difficult. He'll actually allow that. He's not responsible for it, but he will allow it because what he's trying to do is to help you to find stuff inside of you that is not believing right. He actually wants to help you by going, oh, look, I'm not responding to this terrible set of circumstances like Jesus would respond. And because I'm self-aware and I take personal responsibility, I'm not blaming my circumstances for what I, how I'm responding. I actually am going, thank you, Jesus, for showing me what's actually going on inside of me because now I have an opportunity to change to be like you. I now have an opportunity to be patient. I now have an opportunity to be gentle with somebody who's not been gentle with me. I now have an opportunity to be kind to the person who's rejecting me. I now have an opportunity to find peace when I don't have enough money to pay the bills and I'm not going to freak out and I'm not going to worry. I have an opportunity to actually access who you are for me and to ask you to help change the inner turmoil that's in my world. And so, so we begin to realise that our Christian life is not about making everything nice and secure. Our Christian life is about how much am I becoming like him? And I don't read into my life going south and things not working out that I've done something wrong. No, it's actually the Lord just wanting to help me show me what I'm believing because he wants to help me change what I believe so that I believe like he believes, so that I grow in capacity. And, so, so, and the reason that you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ is that he was the firstborn of many brethren. And so Jesus actually wants to create a whole bunch of people who are just like him. He's the firstborn of many brethren. And so my privilege of being a leader at Stairway, my privilege of speaking to you today, is to help people realise that you could actually be one of the many brethren that Jesus is the firstborn of. That you are now a brother of his, not just because you're in his family, but he actually wants you to look like him, to think like him and to be like him. And so when we begin to understand that this is what it's all about, to become a disciple of Jesus is not to attend church and is not to go to prayer meetings and is not to tithe and is not to serve in church and not to... That's, that's primarily not what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. They're all really great things and they're things that we should do. But that's not what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. Being a disciple of Jesus is becoming like him, being conformed to his image. And all that other stuff I do because I am being conformed to his image, but it's not those things that are a means to an end. They're not the end in themselves. The end is, how much am I looking like Jesus? And the end of that is, the primary thing about Jesus is his love. Because we live in a kingdom of love. And so the Holy Spirit wants you to be one of the many brethren. That's what he's up to. And he's happy for you to be as uncomfortable as is required. (laughs) That you would learn those lessons. He doesn't mind your world being uncomfortable. Because it's all about changing you so that you can represent him well. 
Let me finish with this quote and then we'll go to morning tea. John G. Lake again said, The greatest manifestation of the Holy Ghost baptized life ever given to the world was not in the preaching of the apostles. It was not in the wonderful manifestation of God that took place at their hands. It was in the unselfishness manifested by the church. Think of it. 3,000 Holy Ghost baptized Christians in Jerusalem from the day of Pentecost onward who loved their neighbor's children as much as their own. That would be a greater manifestation than healing, greater than conversion, greater than baptism of the Holy Spirit, greater than tongues. It would be a manifestation of the love of 1 Corinthians 13 that so many preach about and do not possess. What John G. Lake realized out of all the extraordinary things that God did in him and through him, that's how we love other people. That is the greatest mark of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And that I would actually learn how to love my neighbor's children as much as I love my own kids. My second daughter has been rushed off to hospital this morning with a suspected appendicitis and she's probably getting them taken out right now. And so Lynn received a phone call from Erin, you know, about six o'clock this morning saying, you know, I'm in so much pain, it's unbelievable, I'm nearly fainting, can you come and look after the kids so that John can take me to hospital? And so Lynn, of course, gets up, gets in the car, drives the 25 minutes to be there. The big question for Lynn and myself is, if somebody else in our congregation made the same phone call, would we do the same for them? The even bigger question is, if somebody who'd rejected me and who was speaking badly of me rang and asked me to do the same thing, what would I do? I'm not sure that I'd actually go, sure, let me help you. I've just finished taking you out of the birdcage and put you back in there. (laughs) And now you want me to help you? Let's pray. Father, help us to be great lovers. Holy Spirit, we recognise that we are on a journey of discovering how to love well. And we embrace that journey. We embrace it, Lord, knowing that you are with us and you want to set us free. You're not there condemning us when we fail, but you're there, Lord, ready to help us to love well. So, Lord, I I pray that you would help us to identify those around us that we can love in a way that you want us to love them, where we're not necessarily doing so well right now. Holy Spirit, help us to make the end game how well we love, that you would be glorified and that the whole world would know that we are your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're interested... um, uh, as I say, I've written a number of books about this topic. Uh, the first one, A Voyage of Mercy, is about how I connected with the love of God personally. The second one is about how Stairway is growing as a community who love one another. And the third one, A Priorities, is about how we've taken that love and we're taking it out to pre-believing people and seeing them getting healed and, uh, and touched by the power of God. Only the third one's available over there, Priorities. It's got about 100 testimonies in there of people from our congregation who have stepped into loving well and released supernatural power through that process. There's a whole bunch of theology in there, some of which I unpacked this morning. Um, So the other two are out of print, but there's a little thing here that says you can go to Amazon and you can either get them electronically or you can order them hard copy. So you can order a hard copy and it will be delivered to your door uh, from Amazon. 
So if you're interested, Justin will be over there to help you out. Thanks so much, Andrew. Ta. Put our hands together and say thank you for the first session. Thank <laughs> you.